Welcome, at last. Blake... Is it Blake? It is he. Hello and welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 24 where we will be chatting about the series B story, Voice from the Past. Voice from the Past. (laughs) We'll get there, Richard. We'll get there. (laughs) Written by Roger Parks. This is the first of three scripts you'll do across the course of the series. Another new writer. Yep. Yep. It is directed once again by George Spenton Foster and we'll be talking about him. This was first broadcast on the 13th of March, 1979, and the ratings were 7 million, basically steady. Now, before we get into it, I just wanted to make a couple of very general comments. First of all, in the last few weeks, we've had a number of people who've been tweeting us or joining in conversations on our social media, pointing out that they are actually doing Blake 7 for the first time. Wow. And are actually listening into this podcast as they do. It does reinforce something. When we started this, we thought, look, maybe some people will be watching the series with us Mm -hmm. and will be very wary about spoilers and and building the arcs as they actually go rather than showing too much foreknowledge. So for those people who were looking for an excuse to get into Blake 7 and we've been part of that excuse, that's That's that's, pretty cool. Yeah, it's a really cool thing. So we hope you stick with us. We hope you're enjoying it. Just a reminder, we don't like to do this every episode, but if you can leave a review or a rating on iTunes or whatever Mm -hmm. your podcast platform is, we would be very grateful because it does help other people to find the podcast mm. and if that gets more people into Blake 7 or chatting about Blake 7 well that can only be a good thing that can be a good thing so public service announcement over we're here to talk about voice from the past I have been allocated this one to go through which I didn't mind I think there's a lot to talk about in this one but we'll kick off Richard with your thoughts I'm going to start by saying this is not an episode that I have ever held in particularly high regard. I can verify that as someone who's known you for over 20 years and <laughs> talked about Blake 7 in that time. I can verify that's not a lie. Um, in fairness, look, I think there are some really interesting ideas in this one, but some of the plotting, I think, is quite weak, as is the script. We have mentioned George Benton Foster's name, and look, we have been a bit critical of his work in the other episodes he directed. And with one notable exception, I don't think there's anything particularly inspired in the direction here. There were some good bits. And look, I would think that if you just watch this, you know, after coming home from work and having dinner in the late 1970s, sort of the tail end of the winter of discontent, (laughs) look, it would have been maybe an enjoyable romp. I'd probably make the final point. I actually think this is one that could be a real winner if you were doing it in a modern take on the series or a modern series. There is a lot of stuff you could really do if you had three or four or slightly longer run of episodes to explore some of the ideas that are shown here. And I know some people, when they deride Blake 7, they say that it's a sort of a campy, low-budget runaround. I think this might be Exhibit A, actually. <laughs> Look, there's nothing there that I'm sitting here going, wow, where did that opinion Something come from? Yeah, yeah. No, I'm very fond of this episode. I always have been. And that was reflected in my watching for this podcast. I think this is going to be an episode, Richard, that I get a lot more out of than you did. I've said a couple of times now in Series B that I've found episodes with good ideas where the whole didn't quite meet the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. For me, this actually is one where 
the good ideas and the good moments in it are enough to get me through. And I actually do think that there is quite a lot of really cool stuff going on here. Mm -hmm. As you said, and I think this is where we do agree, there are some very cool concepts in this episode. There are some really interesting ideas, yes. And for the most part, I am carried through and I'm quite fond of this one. So it sounds like we're going to have an interesting discussion and that's good. That hopefully makes for a good podcast episode. (laughs) A lively discussion. But look, I said that there were a couple of problems and they do really permeate throughout the episode. And rather than piecemealing around them or anything, I want to get them out of the way right at the start. And then we'll get into a bit more of the discussion about Blake and the crew. So two points, the first of which is Van Glind. Not the actor. I think the actor is actually pretty good. Yeah, that's fair. And I think the character is pretty good. The problem here is that it is not Robert James. No. Now, if you're going to do a callback, a whole 22 episodes back to the start of the Mm -hmm. series a year and a half ago, Mm -hmm. if you can't get the same actor to play the character, at least surely you try to get somebody who looks a little bit reminiscent of him, mm. not a guy who's like a completely different height, build, voice, and has a beard, <laughs> which is just unfortunate. Like, if you're going to do that, why bother having it as Van yeah. Why not just say he's the... Random Federation. Random Federation Minister guy. of Justice yep. or something. Yeah, yep. That is a problem, and it's further compounded by the fact that, look, whilst it's very cool they're doing callbacks, and mm. this is a show that we've seen many times before, almost uniquely for the era has got a universe that does call back on itself. If you're going to go that far back, you've kind of got to get it right. And here they really struggle because they conflate Blake's two trials. Yes. Blake had one trial well before we met him where he was charged with being a member of the Resistance and he was brainwashed and did his confession, etc. Then there's the trial that we see in the way back, which Van Glind was in charge of organising. Yep. And that's the trial that he has for child molesting. Yes. Now, whilst it's not impossible that Van Glind was part of the first trial, they certainly do here conflate the two. They do. I guess if you sort of squint a little bit, the bit where they say that Blake was deported on trumped-up charges is a way probably of skirting around raising the issue of him being a convicted child molester, uh, uh, yeah. even if they're fake charges, without sort of having to mention that. But yes, you're right. The rest of the material presented here really is more around his trial for political dissidents. Yes, which isn't the trial for the way back, but it's sometimes implied that it was. So you have incorrect callbacks and a recurring character played by a very different actor. Mm. I will say, though, that the callbacks are pretty cool. And for a long-time fan, particularly watching many times as we have, there is some really good stuff in there. For example, that very passing reference to the fact that Aurak has a programming against telepathic influence. Yes, indeed. Even though they get it wrong, they do also mention that Servalan clearly was trying to pull something slightly shady in acquiring ORAC. Yes. There's references in there to Pressure Point, to Cyclicate, Destroy or Killer, Countdown even. Yes. So that's very good, and that does help build this idea of a Blake 7 universe. The second point that I need to mention is Shivan, and the problem here is both with the concept and the performance... Yep. Uh, look, as you intimated earlier, Richard, and many times during the lead-up to this podcast, we have had a lot of fun over the years doing our impersonation of Siobhan. Yes. <laughs> the problem is that it doesn't work on screen, and and literally, I talk about my memories of this story. I've always enjoyed this story for the bigger picture stuff, but it took me many, many viewings before I actually really understood what was going on, because... Siobhan is given all of the expositionary dialogue 
And it's incomprehensible. Largely, yes. <laughs> All the stuff where he's explaining how he knows what Venglind is up to and how Venglind wants to be the puppet master and insert Blake and all the rest of that. It is just incomprehensible. Look, let's listen to the example I'm referring to now. You think I'm so damn enfeebled as to forget the rules of the game. Enthrone your puppet Blake to post your ample claim whilst you enjoy the real fruits of power. Governor Legrand must be greeted. You still need me, brother. Did I deny it? Brother? Having Siobhan's head wrapped up in bandages, so all you could hear is knuckle stuff like this, and then putting on that sort of outrageous French accent. <laughs> really, yeah, a lot of the dialogue is quite incomprehensible. If you don't know what you're actually listening for, it's very difficult. There probably is some additional stuff around the character and concept of Siobhan that we might hold off until a bit later in the episode, but I, I take the opinion, I don't think the Siobhan stuff works at all. Yes, it it is probably the biggest hole in the episode. We'll talk about the character as we meet him during the course of the episode. I also want to talk very briefly just about some of the bigger points as well, so we're not sort Mm -hmm. of doing them piecemeal through the episode. The trigger signal device, which is a clearly very Pavlovian device, and you're almost waiting for somebody to break the fourth wall and reference the Pavlov's dog and the the treats and all the rest (laughs) and the saliva and all the rest of that. Well, they do almost. Avon talks about that you had the drugs and the sound, and then after a few days all you need is the sound, and you just drop into that hypnotic trance. Yes. It's a very clever idea. I actually like that the episode skirts around a bit how it works, in that is it beaming just suggestions to Blake? Mm. Is it actually beaming controls into Blake? Like, Is it a full Manchurian candidate, you are programmed to do this? It must at least be telling him he has to get to Asteroid. To the Asteroid, because he deliberately, after he hears the noise, he quite purposefully walks onto the flight deck and changes course. Yeah, so that needs to be in there. And it's implied, particularly by the way that Gareth Thomas plays it, that Glind is able to at least influence or push him in certain directions, and he's under some level of control Yes, I did wonder whether that amulet thing they try to put on him, the symbol of liberty that they try to make him wear about halfway through the episode is some form of localised device like a relay or something because they make a big deal out of you must take this, you must wear it. And then they sort of go through the stuff around you can't go across and welcome Governor Legrand, you must send your deputy to go and do it, which I sort of almost took to being Vengling is worried he'll get outside the range because they're now relying on that little handheld version. He may well go outside the range of the device if he teleports across to Legrand's ship. But the episode doesn't expressly say that. Unless they just want to get Blake off the flight deck for a few minutes so Venglind and Siobhan can have their big discussion. Uh, maybe, maybe. Certainly from a plot point of view, that does make sense. We also get, and I think this is some of the better and very strong stuff mm. in the episode, a lot of world building. Yes. Parks, very clearly, is identifying the Federation as an empire akin in structure in some ways to the Roman Empire, in that you've got Rome, as the Terran administration, a very central governing point. It's the centre of the military. And then sort of the further out you get, the less direct control there is. And you've got your regional governors that 
go yeah. out there. You know, you, you're governor of Spain, you're governor of Gaul, yeah. you're governor of Syria. These are sort of authority figures within themselves that are tasked to keep the peace and govern mm. on behalf of Rome and pay homage to Rome and all the rest of that. Yep. But still have a level of autonomy in how they go about that. Yes. And then they can always, of course, send in the legions should the governor start getting ideas above their station. That's right. And the fact that both Van Glind and Avon identify that there are levels of craziness in governors. Mm. There are clearly the arch loyalists and there are clearly the ones that like to push their freedom a lot further. And Le Grand being the outlier of those. So that world building works really well, as I think does this idea that they can somehow depose the administration via a legal case and basically not even a legal case via a PR case their idea is that Van Glyn comes out and says this government is so corrupt they did the Blake stuff they did the ORAC stuff and a whole lot of other stuff that they don't mention that the population is going to rise up and topple them well it does build into that idea we've been developing that there is clearly again a middle class and an undrugged middle class that care about this sort of stuff but we have also seen that the Federation are quite happy to just make people who don't fit their worldview disappear. So I was left really wondering how on earth do they honestly think going to a governor's summit and portraying this is really setting them up for anything than probably a quick death? I always took it as if they can get the majority of the governors on side, that would be such a large critical mass with such a large number of small but worthy power bases of their own, that the Federation couldn't send a legion to everyone, so to speak. No, well, that's true. I guess if there was a major uprising. I was reminded, the Firefly movie, Serenity, yes. one of the main ending point of that really is is when they broadcast the truth about the Alliance and the Reavers. The idea is that that will destabilise the Alliance government. Look, I'm not saying that Van Glind and Legrand's plan would have worked. I, I don't think it would have. But the fact that they actually thought it had a chance is interesting. I think, yes, it does play into the ongoing discussion we've had about the middle class and mm. how they work in Blake 7. So look, there are a few big picture things that we want to talk about, good and bad, mm-hmm. and I think they are very important to the episode, but let's now go and actually talk about how this all works out for Blake and his crew. Now, Richard, you can tell this isn't a Chris Boucher script because we actually arrive on the Liberator in the very opening scene. (laughs) Where they're doing exercises. They're doing exercises. It's this wonderful idea that we get in Blake 7 of stuff actually happens when they're not having adventures. Mm. And there is this mundane aspect of just living life and filling in the hours between trying to destroy the Federation or escaping pursuit ships. And Mm -hmm. things happen at strange times. I was listening to a Star Trek The Next Generation podcast recently where they did make the comment how it's very convenient that they only get attacked by aliens during the day shift when you know all the main regular crew are on shift. <laughs> there is actually a robot chicken skit about what happens when the Borg attack during the night shift. But, yeah. <laughs> I'll have to check that out. But Blake 7 avoids that. We always get this feeling that there are night shifts and yes, people indeed. on duty and they're here just doing exercises. Yes, because I mean, the Villa is obviously the one on watch on the flight deck yeah. and the other four clearly because they're suffering space fatigue or whatever, are doing exercise. Although I will make the point, I don't actually think Sally Nevet or Jenna is really trying at all. She just seems to be sitting there being amused by the others. And I love that as well because it feels like a real group of people. Mm. You know, this really feels like 
that office scenario where people are going, we're really tired, we're really stressed, and somebody's like, oh, I know some really good yoga exercises. Then they'll really help you. And Let's like, have oh. a breakout game or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was like, really? And, and Jenna's the one going, no, dude. And no, 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 it'll be really fun. Come on, it'll be a good team thing. And Kelly's yeah. doing that. And Avon's happy to go with it. Blake's happy to go with it. Villa's sort of happy probably to be on watch. Well, maybe he's been at the Adrenaline and Soma, so he's pretty <laughs> mellow anyway. But... And yeah, as you say, Jenna's just like, look, I'll give this a try, but no. Well, I don't think she'd be doing a lot of yoga in that leather suit either. But anyway... <laughs> Probably one production note just before we kick into the main discussion. Voice in the Past was originally going to be shown straight after Horizon, at the point where Horizon was still one of the episodes in the second half of the season. So given their suffering from fatigue and stress and whatever in Horizon, this probably would have been a tie-in to the same thing there now, rather than going and hiding somewhere on the edge of the galaxy, maybe now they're trying yoga to de-stress <laughs> or something, but maybe it's a tie-in. Blake is a hearing on tone, it's that Pavlovian tone that we've discussed. He goes in, he changes course. There's some really good character stuff in here. I like the fact here that whilst Villa is the more relaxed one and he's the most enthusiastic about going to this Del 10 holiday planet or whatever mm-hmm. it is, he's still not a fool. He can work out that something odd is going on. Not at this stage in the script, no. no. Hey, where's Blake? Why, what's wrong? This course change, that's what. We're heading for some nowhere asteroid. Del 10? Not anymore. Blake's just switched. In what? Blake! You then get the crew's reaction. Avon is very annoyed, not so much with the fact that Blake's changed the destination, just that Blake hasn't even pretended to consult them. No. And even Jenna's a little bit like, hang on, at least you at least talk about this while you're doing it. Blake sort of comes back with, well, I command this ship. G does it, well, hang on, you lead. We don't take commands. Blake, what about Del 10? Why are we diverting to some discarded rock? Any reason, Blake, or simply a whim? A guessing game, perhaps? Priority mission. Whose? Why? Objective. I command this ship. Do you indeed? You lead. We don't take commands. You've always explained, given us reasons for things. When he had any. This time I choose not to. But Blake, if you... For once just tried trusting me. And that's really notable that it's coming from Jenna. Mm. Had it come from Avon, it would have just been another Avon line. From Jenna, it has real significance. But you then get back to Avon just starting to test that loyalty again. Mm-hmm. What is this priority of his? Exactly. He's used a number of ploys to get his own way. But just try trusting me. That's weak, even by his standards. Just that sort of white ending. Yeah. Yes. And, and even when he's diagnosing Blake, he very much spins in, in a way that, look, maybe Blake's middle faculties add up to this. Maybe he's under a bit of stress, you know. Yes. Maybe his judgment's not good. Yeah. This is hardly inspiring qualities for a leader or whatever it is he says. That's right. There is that white anting going on. Very subtle and Avon just taking his mm. chances. Orak wants to link somebody up so they can help monitor Blake's brainwaves. Callie maybe is the obvious choice because she's telepathic. But no, 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 it has to be Jenna because she's not an alien, basically. And I have to say, given that Sally and Yvette actually get some lines and some dialogue and some stuff mm-hmm. to do in this episode, she really grabs this with both hands. Yeah. She's really acting here. I'm assuming she must get to relive whatever horrors were implanted in his brain during his treatment. Yeah. Uh, that, whatever that's, nightmares he's having. That's certainly the impression I get, whether she gets them sort of in full full view or it's just a, an echo or something. It's clearly yeah. not pleasant. And she has to do it, what, 26 more times or something, so... Yeah. <laughs> Again, there's this writing of the crew as being real people under stress. Mm. 
And of course, it ends with everybody screaming and jumping around, and Avon doing karate chops to the back of that. That is neck. really bizarre. It's just, his answer to restraining Blake is just to hit him several times across the shoulder. This is the first of a number of incidents that we're going to refer to, I think, during this episode, where I can imagine, knowing what we do about George Benton Foster's direction, Paul Darrow sort of just going up and going, so look, Gareth, I've worked out this thing, he's going to do this, I'm going to sort of do some karate chops, and Spend Foster being like, I don't care, dude, just as long as you're in shot and I can get the shot. Yeah. You know, if that works for you, do it. <laughs> and so therefore, the camera script doesn't actually work around what Darrow and Thomas are doing. No. And even the blocking of that scene gets worse because Villa sort of comes in from nowhere and has to work his way around yes, what around they're the, doing to get into shot. Around the props, yeah. Yeah, it's a really bizarrely blocked scene, mm. which is a shame because it's a very good scene for Villa. Yeah, he does actually get to sort of be the voice of reason during this bit. Stop it! Yeah, stop it! Help me pull him back! You've all gone mad! Stop it! Interestingly here, a couple of points. Firstly, they accept that they don't really understand what's going on, and that this is a lot of speculation, it's a lot of conjecture. Secondly, though, having identified that Blake is hearing the trigger signal from his uh, days in psychiatric treatment, at no point at this stage do any of them ask why. No, that's true. I mean, it's, it's sort of brushed away that maybe he's dreaming it, but nobody's sitting there going, well, is this something a bit more... Sinister going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Kelly sort of makes the thing that she thinks she can hear the sound as well, but mm. I guess it's one of those things, look, there are a lot of ideas in this episode that you have to cram into 50 minutes, plus you've still got to go through all the stuff with the actual Rebels plot, so there's probably not a lot of time in this part of the script to expand a lot of these ideas. No, and once they get to the asteroid and Blake is down on the mm. surface... Kelly does say, well, if there's a signal, someone must be operating mm. it. It's just a shame they didn't work that out about half an hour earlier. <laughs> that said, you know, we're chopping here between highs and lows. Mm. That, to me, is a fault in the script. We then get a really cool moment, which is the bit where Villa's left to look after Blake on the flight deck. And that is a really creepy, actually well-played, and I think actually well-directed scene. Got us back on course for Del 10, have they? That's right. And not just yet. You know what's happening, don't you? Happening? Avon and Kelly. What about them? Paired up. Mutual affinities. You mean? Oh, it's been going on for some time now. I didn't realise it had gone as far as this. As what? Well, why do you think they're so keen to get us to Del 10? The Vita particles. Who said? Well, you did. No, Avon said. Gareth Thomas is displaying a really different personality here with this. He's acting in such a way that it is not Blake as normal. But he doesn't resort to that cliche of being, you know, mind-controlled zombie. No, mirror universe, Blake. No, he doesn't. No. Do, he doesn't do that either. Yet, yeah. it's a, just a subtle enough difference that it works. And again, Villa here. Look, he's more naive than maybe other members of the crew would be, but he's not stupid. And very clearly, Blake is aware of some concerns that Villa has. That maybe he's a bit of the fifth wheel in the crew. Maybe mm. that others are sort of out to get him. Maybe Avon doesn't trust him. And Blake uses that. And when he says, oh, Kelly and Avon have paired up on the quiet to get rid of you, Villa's not, oh, come on, dude. He's, he's like, yeah, I've been kind of half expecting that to happen. He's been excluding me a lot lately. Yes. It's interesting because you, you sort of have to ask what the device actually does for Blake. I mean, you go into the whole thing about how far under is he and obviously how long have the Rebels been controlling him and whatever, but... It is sort of what the device actually does. We see it at least a couple of points. It must send him detailed instructions. But the rest of the time, 
does it just make him more open to suggestion? Or does it actually enhance maybe some of his fears or paranoia or something? Does Blake see Avon and Callie pairing up really as a real threat to him? He obviously knows Avon wants to take control of the ship. Maybe he feels in the background Avon's actually got Callie on side. I know there is a lot of fan speculation that Avon and Callie at some point in the series obviously are in a relationship. Yes. And I think this is one of the episodes that put forward as evidence yes. for that. Is this really just Blake's paranoia about Avon being amplified? Look, from my point of view, I think that you really have to assume that at the very least, the signal is giving Blake the instruction, get to this asteroid. And how he does that and how he goes about that is sort of left to him. But you're right, it doesn't take a lot of headcanon or a lot of a leap of faith to assume that if this is the signal that is meant to open him up to having his mind remoulded, you are probably losing some of that discipline and some of those walls in his mind and getting a very raw look at Blake's personality, Mm. in which case, yes, his fears would be heightened, his determination would be heightened, his willingness to dismiss the crew and get his way yeah. fate accomplice will be heightened. Mm. And yes, his stress and his paranoia would be heightened. Yeah. So it plays really well, but it also, I think, shows Villa's very real trust in Blake. Uh, yes, indeed. Another really strong point I'll mention here is we get some really good model shots of the Liberator in this scene. Yeah, the model work in this is generally pretty damn good. It is. It's maybe a bit long in a couple of places, but the model work is very, very high level. Yes, which... Is a shame because something that's not very high level is the set design, particularly when Blake beams down to the asteroid. And you get, look, what I always assumed was meant to be an actual depiction of a lunar background. Alan Stevens and Fiona Moore in the Liberation book very charitably assume that that is a mural in the entrance hall. That's been painted by the miners or something. Yes. (laughs) And it actually isn't the lunar background. Let's go with that. But yeah, look, examples there of just how many highs and lows there are in this episode. The spacesuits, I think, have been stolen from Doctor Who. Yeah, Invisible Enemy, maybe? Invisible Enemy, I think, yes. Yep. Now, I have to make a point here. Why does Villa not at least try to just teleport Blake back up when he loses contact with him? Rather than just sort of bleat into the thing, Blake, come on, talk to me, please. You know I'm going to have to go and let the others out of that room if you don't talk to me. Because he's read ahead of the script and knows Blake has to meet... Let's be honest, that's the reason. Well, it is. But yes, you make a valid point. He knows Shivani's just around the corner. <laughs> now, we've spoken a number of times over the last few episodes about that Chris Boucher thing of really letting the plot start and then the crew come into it. Mm-hmm. This is such a contrast. It is 19 minutes before we see anybody else in this episode other than the regulars. Right. And it's 20 minutes before anybody other than the regulars has a line. And that's Shavar. And that's Shavar. <laughs> we have a lot of extras on PK118. Did you track them during the episode? I kind of did. Well, two of them are H. Fielder and Pat Gorman, who've obviously been now in the series several times and yes. are very recognisable faces. Yes. The four male followers seem to teleport up to the Liberator because they are lurking in the background when Legrand first comes onto the <laughs> flight deck and meets Blake. I'm not sure it's the same group of extras that are there on Atlay. I don't know what happens to the two women that are sitting on the couch there. They just seem to get abandoned. There is very clearly a group of extras that were available on location Mm. and that were available in studio, and they don't quite match. No, they don't. Which, again, look, this is not designed to be an exercise in kicking Spence and Foster. No, of course not. But that is something you have to lay at his feet. Mm. Now, we kind of get to the 
repeated in the episode that everything turns around here, which is the news that the Arbiter General has defected. Yes. This is clearly seen by Blake as being a chance to achieve his goals without bloodshed. Now, whether this is because Blake is now under the control of Van Glind and basically, either through suggestion or direct command, is accepting that, or whether Blake, deep down, would prefer it this way, and so, under the influence, he's very open to this prospect and wants to pursue it. Maybe the device enhances that, because I guess at this point... And we have talked about this. He's been, obviously, through the failed raid on control. He's been through losing Gan. He's been through the events of trial. And maybe it is now starting to get a bit much for him. Yes, well, after Villa has freed the other crew from their lockup mm. and they go down and join Blake on the asteroid, we do get that really interesting scene. And it kind of builds on, Richard, what we've discussed a few times over the last few episodes, particularly in Countdown, when we talked about how Blake would meet Del Grant, who actually goes around and frees planets while Blake is just flying around in the Liberator escaping pursuit ships and occasionally blowing something up. You know, this must become very frustrating for Blake and he gives that speech there, which is really all about that. Look, we've been on the run for a long time. What have we achieved? Access to Federation ciphers that have been regularly recoded. A raid on Central and empty pretense. Talk of Star One. Talk of an alliance. Talk, talk, talk. Until now. Shivan and his friends, a senior Federation official. A chance. Our first real chance. And one free of violence and bloodshed. That is a frustrated man that we're hearing there. So given the chance to depose the Federation basically via a talk fest, I can understand why he'd be very willing to explore that. Yeah, for sure. Avon is sceptical, but at this stage he doesn't push it. He does push back on letting other people up to the Liberator, which is a very valid thing to do. But he does kind of go along with the ride for a moment. And my take is he knows that if it's him v. Blake, he loses. Mm. But maybe he's thinking if it's him and Orac, and maybe he's got Kelly on side or Jenner on side, he can win. And he's willing to sort of play the longer game. Yeah. Which is what he does try to do. Now, at this stage, we're joined by Governor Legrand from Outer Gal. Yes. Now, we'll have a bit of a dedicated talk about her and Servalan mm-hmm. shortly, but she now joins the conspiracy and all the players are in place. Yes. So having got all the players in place, the conspiracy mm-hmm. is now rolling out. I've got a few points to make, and I know, Richard, you have as well. Mm-hmm. This is where we start to get Blake referenced as being the Messiah. And I yes. actually took this as being a very strong indication to the audience that this is not the Blake we're used to mm-hmm. because even though I think our Blake would potentially explore this plan the way that he rolls with this idea of being the Messiah being a part of the triumvirate with Legrand and Chavan yep. he wouldn't do that and I think as an audience we're meant to take it as this is not the Blake we know Blake has always pushed back from the idea of he is removing the administration yep. to replace it he actually doesn't have a plan for no, the Federation. No, Blake doesn't have a plan for what comes next, really. His is just to smash the Federation. Yes, so the idea that Blake would happily become one of three kings just makes no sense. And indeed, at face value, the idea of the triumvirate is utter nonsense, but it's utter nonsense because it's meant to be. Mm. Van Glind has got other ideas. 
Well, it is. And it's interesting he isn't part of the triumvirate because they make the point through the episode that Siobhan, they're clearly expecting that he won't be around much longer. And when he is around, he's sort of sitting in the chair at the back. Yes, he's just there to provide support, political acumen or whatever. Being the photo ops. Uh, Basically. (laughs) And hopefully, look, he might live to see the fall of the Federation. That kind of idea. But it's very clear, Ben Glynn obviously has much different ideas. Look, he obviously is in on the plan to topple the Federation. But his idea is very much that when the roles are handed out afterwards, he'll be at the front of the line through his puppet, Blake. Yes, so whether his plan is that the triumvirate is set up as Legrand, Blake and Siobhan, Mm. and he basically rules by controlling Blake through the device, whether it's a case of at some point Blake will give the big speech about how he doesn't want to be the leader, but my good mate Venglin does, or when Siobhan dies of natural or slightly expedited causes, (laughs) Venglin is the obvious candidate to join the triumvirate and then, you know, you could see various yes. permutations. In some ways, that was one of the probably slightly disappointing aspects of the episode because I think with more time, you really could have explored each of them and really their goals. Because, I mean, you can say Legrand is either extremely idealistic or, I guess, probably naive, if you want to be a bit more cynical, that she thinks this plan is going to work and she can just lay out all this information and all these vile deeds that the Federation have done, and that really is going to win the day. Yes. Whereas I think Van Glind perhaps sees that there's going to be a bit more of a struggle, but if there is an alternate leadership that the middle classes can swing behind, mm-hmm. and that members of the council can swing yes. behind... which is Blake, and then he becomes the power behind the throne, basically. And eventually steps up to the throne. Yes. And, and you're right, if this episode was a little bit longer, mm. there could be a discussion that was had maybe with someone like Nagu where he says, oh, you know, I'm very surprised, Venglin, that you don't want to be part of this triumvirate. And Venglin says, no, I'm very happy to be next in line. And mm. he says, well, that's very convenient with Siobhan so close to death. And, or <laughs> maybe if Venglin had a confidant that he could have conspiratorial mm. talks with and you know, maybe talk about how Governor Legrand is a wonderfully naive, useful idiot and... <laughs> I don't expect she will last very long after we get to Palio. I can foresee an accident very close in her future. Yes. I guess her role, other obviously than chairing the conference where they're going to lay everything out, she, as a governor, presumably has the manpower and the resources and everything behind her. I mean, Siobhan is a, well, ostensibly a lone wreck of a man, and Venglin is a fugitive from the Federation. So she's clearly the one providing the resources and the manpower. And again, if we're explaining this out... Outer Gal perhaps becomes the alternate capital of Earth mm. for a period. You maybe get the East and West Empires yep. or something. There's a lot of stuff you can extrapolate out of here that I think is a credit to the script. But you're right, the script will be stronger if a bit more of it actually was there rather than mm. just in our heads. <laughs> yes. Credit at this moment, we need to talk about the ex-Jerry Anderson model work, I believe. Uh, yes, I believe so, actually. Yes. So my understanding is that basically the... Uh, Jerry Anderson Company was doing a big sort of clearance sale of a lot of their old model work, mm-hmm. and a couple of the people in the BBC effects department basically went along with the department checkbook and bought a whole lot of things cheap. And that's why you see a lot of this stuff in season 15 Doctor Who. Ah, oh, yeah, okay. You see a bit of it here, and that, that's basically where it all came from. Ah, yes, okay. And it looks very good. It's clear they've spent some money on it because you do get lingering glory shots. Kind of like you get in the Enterprise in the motion picture. Yes, true. <laughs> uh, but, but they do look good. It does look really good. So, yes, they go down the shuttle. Before that, we have the scene where Avon voices his suspicions about the device, tries to make Blake see reason that these people are controlling you and using you. 
I do have to say, I really do like his little action slam to put Orak's key in place. Yes, yes, that is very, very good. <laughs> but that really is to no avail because Blake, whether he is directly under their control or he has now really grasped that this is a real chance, basically doesn't want to listen. And he really is a real prick, actually, in that scene. He just totally whitewashes over whatever they want to say and then takes Orax key so they can't cause any more trouble. It's the Blake we see in something like Pressure Point without even the attempt to sway mm. and bring along the crew, mm. uh, which, which is interesting. We'll talk about what happens at the end when we get to our chat about Serverland and Legrand, but on the Liberator, we basically end up finding out that shock horror, Siobhan was not the real Siobhan all along. Uh, Nagu gets to do his dramatic death. My... My Lady Legrand. What's wrong? My Lady. And it's Travis. <laughs> Ooh, hiss. <laughs> Look, as a kid, that was a kind of core revelation. I think I'd started to be suspicious that it could be Travis early on. But the revelation when you're 12 is still a cool revelation. Yeah. It's funny because when you know what's coming, when you listen to him talk, it's very obviously Brian Croucher, but... Yes, there are moments that is very clearly Brian Croucher. But, look, so be it, it's television. Yeah. I have to say, as I said at the start, I don't think the Siobhan stuff works at all. It is by far the weakest part of the episode, compounded here by the fact that Travis has finally got his goal of basically capturing the Liberator... And the first thing he does... Is teleport off it again. Yeah. yeah. And that was one of the notes I had. Why does he not just shoot Avon and Callie and just take control of the ship? The only reason I can think of, and this is stretching the headcanon, is that there is something even better waiting for him and that Servalane has some reward. Or even it could just be as simple as he actually doesn't care about the Liberator anymore. He doesn't care about Avon and Callie anymore. He just wants to kill Blake. And so he goes where Blake is. But he doesn't kill Blake either. No, which is why I say it's a stretch. And look, I agree with you. I'm more fond of this episode than you are, but I still totally concede that Siobhan stuff doesn't actually work. Again, if you read the Liberation book, it is apparently quite unclear in the Mercs of History whether it was always going to be Travis or whether Siobhan was a different agent or a different character. But this is how it's ended up. Well, that's actually a note I had. I'm assuming it's Travis because they've realised Brian Croucher is contracted for a set number of episodes so they've got to work him in somewhere because really it would work I think a lot better if it wasn't Travis. Look I think it would as well I'll be more generous and say that the last time we saw Travis was him basically meeting Servalan on mm. X-Bar and in that they have the conversation along the lines of if you help me get Blake then I'll see you officially listed as dead and you'll be a free mm. man whether this is the next logical step of Servalan contacting him and going, hey, I've got this great plan, here's your costume. Well... It does actually work as an extrapolation of their relationship. It it does. I think that's a bit of a stretch, because given he's in that ridiculous costume, I mean, how long has he actually been with the Rebels? They do the whole thing about he turned up on Outer Gal and we patched him up. Has he been wearing that neck brace and the head bandage the whole time? Yes. Has Travis been drinking through a straw for sort of several (laughs) weeks? I mean, no one's attempted to change his bandages. I mean, even if you'd done something like, said, the real Siobhan turned up at Outer Gal and Travis has murdered him and taken his place, Mm. even that would be better than what we get. 
as I said, I actually think it would work better if it wasn't Travis, because you could do something like, it is the real Shivant, but he's also had psychotherapy. Mm. And behold, the mutant shall wither is actually the trigger command to tip him right over the edge or something. Something like Talia Winters in Babylon 5. Yeah, I mean, look, you may not go quite that far. No, but... that, that would be a bit too dark for Blake 7, but yes. But that sort of idea, yes. Yes. As I said, we'll talk more about the uh, stuff down on the planet in a moment, but the net result is that Van Glind is killed by Travis. Yep. Travis is then left alone with some Federation guards in what is a very, very terrible lingering shot that needs to be cut several seconds oh, earlier. That whole sequence is horribly edited because he teleports down points his gun, then clearly stands there doing nothing for several seconds while Jenner is wrestling with Blake and Ving Lind is sitting in the chair rubbing his leg. Yeah. Again, we know that Brian Croucher and Spenton Foster didn't get on. We know that Brian Croucher liked and wanted more direction from the director than George yep. Spenton Foster saw it as his role to give. So again, I have these mental images of 1979 in a BBC studio and Brian Croucher going over to George Spenton Foster and saying, right, so look, in this scene, how's it meant to work? I could do this and then yep. I'm doing this and why am I doing this? And again, Spenton Foster being, dude, stand there, say your line and I'll call cut. Yeah, I don't know. That whole scene just is horribly edited. The so. final point I had really with that is why does the device suddenly start affecting Blake again at the end? Because you start hearing the oscillating tone and he suddenly just curls up in a ball. Okay, so I've literally just come up with this headcanon here during the conversation. Right. If the device actually is mentally linking Van Glind to Blake, mm-hmm. and Van Glind is able to telepathically persuade Blake, is Van Glind getting wounded and then killed enough for the device to go a little bit crazy and send him static? Yeah, okay. It works. It does work. I can't see any other reason why, at that point, the machine would suddenly activate. He hears the sound. He, as I said, he just sort of curls up in a ball... Clutching his head. Because it's dramatic, Richard. Oh, is that what it is? Now, if we agreed that the Chavan plotline is the weakest of the episode, I actually think the Servland and Legrand plotline is the strongest. Mm-hmm. Partly just because of the relationship between the characters... Unfortunately, it is a full 26 minutes before we actually get to Servland's office and meet her in the ground. Right. I had she wasn't timing, but okay. Yeah, it is actually past the halfway point of the episode, which, look, it does at least introduce a new element to the episode when it could have started flagging, so I get that. I love this first conversation between them where they're testing each other. Legrand thinks she knows more than Servaland does. Mm-hmm. Servaland knows she knows more than <laughs> Legrand actually does. And that dynamic is actually really cool. It's cool when you see it the first time. And it's even cooler, I think, when you know, yeah, we know the what's background. Coming. Yeah. And you can actually see the way that Servaland is playing that so relaxed and so comfortable. And just, oh yes, uh, Deputy Commander Galt's dealing with that. You know, Very, very dismissive. <laughs> the mention of Shivan. Mm-hmm. which I took as Servaland just sort of feeding a little bit of uh, false intelligence yep, into the Legrand. narrative moving. It's a really good performance, and it ends with... Transmit a message using pre-revised ciphers. Message to read. Behold, the mutants shall wither. Now, that's a very cool line. I'm not sure actually what it means. Is that meant to be a trigger phrase or a secret phrase that Deputy Commander Galt at Atlee gets and says, right, phase three of the plan is happening, you know, yep. take your places, or...? 
Well, that's what I assume it's meant to do, but I don't. I don't know why it's that particular trigger phrase, unless it's just a thing that no one would ever use in regular conversation. So it's not phase three, go go go, or something. <laughs> you know, might alert Blake. But... And, and it does appeal to Servalane's sense of humour. Mm. The other big scene we get with the two of them is look. I think it's the scene that this episode is probably best known for. I think so. And as I said at the top, I know we have been critical, and indeed during this episode we have been critical of George Beaton Foster's work, but I have to say the direction on this is really good. Yes, look, we called him out where we thought there was some poor direction, but we are very willing to praise him when there is good direction, and there definitely is here. That moment, and I can remember the first time I saw this, like vividly remember, Mm. when they walk into the hall, it's empty, the lights go out one at a time, and then Servalan appears on the cinema screen. Governor Lohmond, you are completely surrounded. If you wish to avoid bloodshed, you will instruct your bodyguard to put down their weapons. That is just a wonderful moment. It clearly owes itself to Big Brother. Yes. And 1984. Yeah, there's a lot of 1984 in this. There is actually, yes. It clearly owes it to that. But the first time you watch it, I think it's just a wow moment. Yeah. Given the chance to watch it back again and again, the way that Servalan is really saving the moment and taking her time, the way that Legrand plays it, like from the moment Servalan appears on screen, she knows she she's knows toast. She's yeah. You get the idea, Servalan is really, really savouring this. I am going to wring every last ounce I can out of this. Yes, every moment of terror. Yep. It is great. And by the end of it, Legrand is just in floods of tears like Mm. this is a politician who thinks she's done the right thing for liberty and justice and thinks she's been one step ahead of Servalan the whole time and realises actually she's been behind Servalan the whole time Servalan's always had her measure no doubt in her last moments she's reflecting on the fact that people she must have trusted have clearly betrayed her yep and indeed people in her circle are being rounded up. Yes, people she trusted yes. and stayed loyal are being rounded up. Look around. The High Council have been aware of your pathetic plot from the beginning. Our only surprise is that you have come this far without realising how transparent your intentions have been. I repeat... Your bodyguard will put down their weapons. Although she turns to run, there's really no... There's nowhere to go. No, there's nowhere to go. And it's played as that moment of, well, I can't just stand here, but I've got nowhere to go and Mm. I'm done. Again, I guess if you're thinking quickly, you know, teleport bracelets back on and get out of there, but, you know, what's going to happen? She's finished. Yeah, it's a remarkably well-directed scene. It's well-played. It's powerful. It's a dramatic climax to the episode. It's just a shame that scene with Travis and Van Glynn comes after it, but... (laughs) When I think of this episode, the cool ideas leading up to this moment, Mm -hmm. combined with the effectiveness of this moment, and the memorable nature of this moment, means that I walk away from Voice in the Past having had a good time and having enjoyed myself. Yes, absolutely, it's very easy to pick apart. And there are poor points, so I fully can see that. But the net effect, if you Mm -hmm. just sit back and watch it, I contend actually is pretty cool. Okay. As I said, I think that scene is great. I'm sorry for me, it doesn't outweigh the rest of the episode, but I can see that scene is brilliant. Fair enough. And I suppose one last thing, we end with the final, and we've sort of been calling them Scooby-Doo moments on the Liberator. 
we get what's almost another one here where Blake clearly comes to his senses again and returns to normal in inverted commas. What are we all standing around for? Or has the Federation disappeared? Our problem is to find Star One, if you hadn't forgotten. I'm sorry to have to inform you that he is himself, all right? It's almost a Scooby-Doo moment, but at least it comes naturally from the characters. Blake, again, really is a bit of a... Let's be honest, he is actually a bit of a prick at the end here. Blake can't stand the idea that others know more than he does and he's not in control. No, that's the note I had. The others have him at a disadvantage, so his way of dealing with that is just to push right back. Big dog them. Yeah, basically. And look, it is actually quite a funny line. And again, it's not overplayed. Michael Keating particularly just gives a very very sort of knowing, yeah, good call. (laughs) (laughs) So Richard, this has been a very complicated episode. Whatever you make of them, there are a lot of ideas and threads going through this. It's been quite complicated and I think that's why we've had a bit of a longer discussion than yeah, we, probably with this one. we yep. normally would. But with that, let's go into our regular segment. Our first regular segment is, of course, Guest Cast. We've got three on this occasion. Yeah. The first of them is Richard Bebb as the recast of Ben Glynn. Answer to the <laughs> famous Blake Seven trivia question, which three characters are played by two actors? Yep. And most people get Travis. Yep reasonable number of people get Orac. Yeah. Uh, Van Glynn is the one to show you're a true fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's true. So Richard Bebb, he has got a lot of credits going back to his first credit in the telemovie The Fur Coat in 1949. Right. He did a lot of those early BBC theatres right through the 50s. Yeah. He was in three episodes of Compact, turned up in The Avengers, The Mary Curie miniseries he was in he was in King Ralph as the gamekeeper with Peter O'Toole and John Goodman yeah yeah yeah, yeah. my goodness he was in the final cut which is the third part of the UK House of Cards trilogy and indeed not that long ago was the newsreader in six of the Hercule Poirot's that the BBC did okay he also did a lot of radio work in that golden era in the later 1940s and 1950s so around the time John Pertwee was doing stuff like the Navy Lark and a lot of his radio oh, yes. stuff. The Golden Age. Yes, really. He also did a lot of theatre work, as probably actors from around that era would have done. And he certainly comes across in this as a very theatre actor and probably works very well off Gareth Thomas because of that. Mm. Yeah, he did a lot of voice work as well because he was recognised as having a very distinctive voice. He was actually an authority on voices and voice attributes. He used to collect phonograph recordings of early opera performers and all that sort of stuff. He had a massive collection, apparently, of like 78s and phonograph cylinders and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, and he was the known authority on voice work. Fair enough. Somebody with a less lengthy career is Frida Noor, who played Governor Legrand. She does have a lot of credits, but they're very much around this period. Yes. If you look at IMDb, she's got credits for about 25 years, I think. But this is pretty much smack in the middle of them. Yeah, and this is the peak time. A couple of notes I had. She did seven episodes of Top Secret in 1961-62. She was also in The Avengers. She was in The Baron. And another of those big sort of prestige dramas, A Horseman Riding By. The, oh, yeah. The adaption of the Delverfield novel. Yeah, a lot of her stuff is really guest roles. For example, she's in several episodes of Dixon and Doc Green. There's three or four different characters. That sort of stuff. She was apparently also a trained soprano. That doesn't surprise me, actually. Mm. There you go. There you go. And our third character, who probably has the biggest list of credits, even though he's the most minor role in this. Yes. 
is Martin Reed as Nagu. Now, he's got a huge list of credits. A lot of the times he's playing cops, actually. Yeah, I noted that too. He was in the 1974 Dracula. He is a Detective Constable Jimmy Thorpe in five episodes of The Sweeney. He's in 17 episodes of Flesh and Blood, one of the occasions he's not playing a cop. Right. Uh, or Yes Minister, where he turns up as a reporter. He is Sergeant Wilson in The Darling Buds of May. He's the police sergeant in an episode of Inspector Morse. He's a cop in Minder too, I think. He's a cop in Minder, yes. yes. He's a DCI in an episode of Kavanaugh QC. He's in six episodes of The Bill, mostly playing cops. Yeah, and I think a lot of probably not as well-known series, he's police officers in a lot of them too, I think. Absolutely. And he does give us our two mandated references for this episode. <laughs> he, was in, he was in Doctor Who, where he played a security guard in Silver Nemesis. Right. And he's the one that kicks them out of Windsor Castle. Oh, yeah, okay. Yep. And he was in an episode of Rumpole of Bailey. Ah. <laughs> so we have a reference where he played a police superintendent. Now, one other note with him, and this is probably more for our UK listeners, he was also the Captain Birdseye character in a series of TV commercials. Now, okay, I think I know where this is going. It's, it's actually not in the era that the goodies are making fun of Captain Fishface, oh, unfortunately. That, that's a shame. It's actually more recent. It's from 2002 to 2007. But yes, he was the bloke in the sailor costume who advertised fish fingers and cod pieces. Well, there you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll move on then to Liberator Database, which given that we've complimented this episode for its world building, mm-hmm. we've got a couple of points to make. We get a reference to the pleasure world, I think it's meant to be Del 10, where there yep. are Vita particles. <laughs> Blake Seven's version of the Eye of Orion or, <laughs> or Florana. And clearly somewhere it's safe for the crew to... That's drop, true, drop actually, yes. yes. So whether that's outside Federation space, I don't yep. know. Now, one interesting piece of universe building is if you have a copy of Tony Atwood's program guide for the series. Oh, yes. A venerable time. Yes. This got us through as fans for many, many decades. <laughs> this wonderful little book. He actually uses this episode to extrapolate how long a spatial is. I do remember this, yes. yes in that the size of asteroid PK-118 is given mm-hmm. as being 0.102 spatials. Right. He then assumes that PK-118 is the average size of an asteroid. Yep. And extrapolating that all out, it gives you a spatial being about 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometres. Right. Which, if you then go and say that the standard orbit around a planet is 1,000 spatials mm-hmm. or a million miles, yep. would be about right to sort of be outside the range of moons and satellites and the like. Okay. So, there you there go. There you go. That's Tony Atwood's variation on what a spatial is. And the final point that I had is just the fact that there are mining companies that are controlled by law suggests that there is independent commerce in the Federation. Yeah. And the little bit of world building that they're bound to sort of leave emergency supplies for passing space travellers. Stranded travellers or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was kind of cool. Mm. We move on then to, look, it was the 1970s. Now, from a production point of view, the conference centre is very 1970s. Yep. The inside of that device when everyone smashes it is also very 1970s tech. Very solid state circuitry, yes. We are, of course, here five years after Watergate. Oh, yeah. And I wondered whether that maybe seeped into the plot a little bit. Perhaps. But something I want to take away from this is that political structure and that concept of the triumvirate, because that is really sort of highlighted as a concept in the episode. Now, in 1979, probably the most famous triumvirate was the Soviet Troika from 64 to 77, which was following the ousting of Nikita Khrushchev, mm-hmm. you had Brezhnev, Koznigan, and Podgorny ruled as a troika. 
basically with Brezhnev taking greater and greater control until he finally took over until yes. he took over completely in 77 so mm. most of the time in the lead up to this the Soviets were ruled by a troika most of the Argentine juntas usually started as triumvirates okay. and very rarely lasted that long because yep. again common pattern here one of them ends up in charge <laughs> if we leave the 1970s but go back to history particularly the sort of history that most of I think the production team and indeed the viewers watching this would have been brought up on. During the reign of terror in France, France was officially ruled by the triumvirate until, again, Robespierre became dominant and then took over. And then there was talk when Robespierre was replaced of potentially another triumvirate taking over, but Napoleon had other ideas. (laughs) And probably the most famous use, again, that would have been very familiar in English schoolrooms and the like, is Rome. Rome. That first triumvirate of Caesar, Marcus Linnaeus Crassus and Pompey the Great, or probably even more famous thanks to William Shakespeare, the second triumvirate of Octavius, who was obviously later as Caesar Augustus, and again emerged from that triumvirate and ruled the empire, Mark Anthony and Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. Every example we have here of a triumvirate ends up with somebody taking control. Well, yes. Exactly the way that we imply Van Glynde sort of sees himself eventually taking over. But again, those Roman references again support this idea that Parks has of the Federation being analogous to the Roman Empire Mm -hmm. and the governors he had. So that's our look. It was the 1970s and indeed the BC 70s. (laughs) (laughs) Which brings us to what happened next. Well, we made the mention that obviously anyone associated with Legrand presumably would have been rounded up as part of Serverland wrapping up the rebel cell. If this was a modern series with that ability to do locations via CGI and a bit more budget, we would absolutely have cut away to Legrand's office where her staff and family or whatever would be just rounded up. I'm imagining, and we've referenced this before, those scenes in Claudius where Sejanus falls and just the troops just sort of come in and flood the place. And I would love to see those scenes on Outer Gal. Yeah, that would have been quite interesting, particularly actually if Serverland had put it up on the screen really as just that final... Oh, yeah. Just nail in the coffin that everything is failed and everyone you care about yeah. is going to die with you. Yeah. One note I had is that, like presumably returns to normal at the end of the episode. You'd sort of have to wonder, are the crew now maybe a bit wary that he could be controlled like that again? That he maybe has some form of artefact or something still lingering in his subconscious? The episode doesn't really seem to touch on that at all. It's just that sort of nice, neat ending and reset. What we probably needed there was that button that we had on Shadow where A1 explains that he's now put the little explosive device in ORAC just just to stop the same thing happening again yeah look I think from a dramatic point of view the final line we get is a good one and going into a bit of more explanation wouldn't work but you are right I imagine that Avon at some point would have turned to Kelly and gone so how do we stop this happening again Mm. but as it is Blake is continuing to hunt Dockley yes and Travis's plot is basically left open ended well I mean you would assume the Federation would have at least captured him and yeah. maybe Servalane orders them to let him go or something. That would be my assumption, yes. Yeah. Which brings us to what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? And there are a few of them. There are a few. I have to say, though, for an episode where Avon gets a bit to do, there's not really heaps of his snarky put-downs. Well, it's a very heavy episode. Mm, true. Right from the start, I love his line, These exercises of yours, Kelly, do not appear to improve the temper. <laughs> He does get a couple of good put-downs with Villa. Villa says, oh, you're in charge now, are you? Can you think of anyone more suitable? Yourself, perhaps. 
I like his line where Jenna mentions the wretched mining companies. No sense of aesthetics. And while she's clearly being ironic, he gives the very literal, what do you want them to do, landscape. He has totally missed her attempt at sarcasm there. Yes. (laughs) I'm also very fond of Kelly. What do we do, Avon? Locate and destroy it. Orak then says, and restore Blake to his senses. But the two don't necessarily follow. I do like the little bit at the end, though, where he does get just get one last little barb in on Blake. Blake's, what happened? Why aren't we at Del 10? What's going on? And he says, why don't you just say thank you nicely? <laughs> and, of course, his wonderful final line, I'm sorry, I have to inform you, he is himself all right. <laughs> so, look, there is some good stuff in there. Which brings us to our Player of the Week. Richard? Siobhan. No. <laughs> <laughs> My Player of the Week... I went for the really obvious one, which was Servalane. Because, mm-hmm. look, I think she is really good in this episode. And I think Jacqueline Pierce plays it really well. We highlighted that that main scene where she just appears on the screen, that is a brilliant scene. So I did have an honourable mention for Gareth Thomas. Cause well, I... well, I'll actually intercede there and say he was my winner. Oh, okay. The pick of the week. And I'll see if our reasoning is the same. Yeah, I had him as my honourable mention because, look, I thought he did do some of the stuff where he was under the influence. He did that really well, and he did make Blake out to be a different character. Yeah, look, that was exactly my reasoning. Not only do we get another very good performance from Gareth Thomas, he does delineate when he's under control very well without, as I said earlier, sort of going into zombie Blake or any of those sort of cliches. He works very well against Ben Glynn. And that scene as well where he's actually very convincing this idea of Blake's frustration growing that although they're achieving a few little things, they're really not achieving more than just talk, talk, talk and mm. ambitions, I thought it was a really strong one. And look, I agree, Serverland is very good, but Gareth Thomas and Blake for me. There you go. So look, that brings us to the end. I think we've really thoroughly explored our, mm-hmm. our, our opinions. I'm fond of this, but can see its flaws. You see its flaws and they don't quite line up for the good stuff. But we both, <laughs> we both agree there's good stuff in here. Yes, there is. But we are going to be back next time with Gambit. I'm looking forward to this. It's a fun episode. It's one of the first episodes I ever saw, actually. Right. Before I really knew what Blake 7 was. But we'll have that conversation next time. Until then, I've been Dave. I'm Richard. Set course for Freedom City. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. when he doesn't want to be rescued. More to the point, are you yourself? What happened? 
Why aren't we at Del 10? What's going on, Evan? Why don't you just say thank you nicely? 